Pozvání. Thank you for allowing me to be part of your day today. I usually tell folks that it's an honor to come and speak when you have a special day and then they invite you to come in and, and be a guest for your guest. That's a, a high honor and it humbles me and I thank you for letting me be a part of this. This has been one of those weeks that, uh, you know, you, I have an eclectic experience base. I, Friday I was doing a ropes course for social services leadership. So I spent the day up on a tower letting people repel and zip line out. Yesterday I spoke at a jiu-jitsu seminar <laughs> on sports psychology with a bunch of cage fighters. And then today I'm with the brethren and going to do a little talk about uh, depression. Uh, riding with me today is a young man named Cody Gothart. Cody's right there. Uh, he grew up in my youth program. Uh, knew him since he wasn't taller than me. <laughs> it didn't take him long to get taller than me. And uh, he rode shotgun with me today, kind of keep me awake and keep me between the lines. And it is our pleasure to be with you. And thank you for the invitation. Depression is an interesting topic. Uh, I tell people depression is kind of like height. We all have some of it, some of us more than others. Um, when, in, in my practice as a therapist... I run into two basic kinds of depression, and I think it's important to just get that on the table first. One kind of depression I call indigenous depression or chemical depression. It is absolutely a function of brain chemistry. It's the same as having low blood sugar. It's the same as having high blood sugar. It's the same as having a thyroid problem. It's the same as having a bad appendix. It's the same as having diabetes. It is something that you didn't cause... It's something that you probably can't cure and it's something you're going to have to cope with. If you have a chemical imbalance in your body, the only way to treat it is fixing those chemicals. Now, how do you fix a chemical problem? With chemicals. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing faithless. There's nothing weak about your character. There's nothing at all wrong with taking medicine to help you change the way your brain processes chemicals. Plain and simple. Uh, a lot of times in the church, we have this feeling that, oh, I should have a strong enough faith or I should pray more and not have to have these chemicals. And that's just not true. You take your blood pressure medicine, you take your cholesterol medicine. Uh, if you had to have your appendix taken out, you let them do that. That doesn't mean you have weak character. You know, hey, my, I, I'm missing a gallbladder about 18 inches of my intestines. Well, it had to be done. It doesn't mean I'm a weak person. It just means they, they got rid of it. Well, when you have a problem with brain chemistry, whether it's from an imbalance or even from a genetic situation, the only way to treat that is, is chemically. Now, in my experience, if you put chemicals toward a problem and it solves the problem, the problem is chemical. If you put chemicals toward a problem and it doesn't solve the problem, the problem is probably not chemical. So if it's not a chemical imbalance, most of the depression I see as a therapist is what we call cognitive depression. Cognition is basically the way you think. It, it, it's in how we deal with the situations in life. A lot of times we call it an interpretation error, although it's not necessarily an interpretation error. One kind of depression is what I call reasonable, normal, and healthy. If you've got a reason to be sad and you're not sad, you're psychotic. <laughs> you know, if you lose your job and you lose your wife and you come home and the house is on fire and you go, hey, let's have a party. Something wrong with you. 
So there are some situations that, that are okay to feel sad about, especially three situations, stress, loss, and guilt. Stress will, will, will absolutely debilitate you if you don't find a way to manage stress. Now, we used to make the distinction between good stress and bad stress. We called it eustress and distress. Now we just call it stress. Uh, good stress, you know, getting ready for a wedding. It's a happy occasion, but there's just a lot. Of, you know, our daughter got married a couple of years ago, and uh, you know, I was waiting for the day when we could finish a statement without after the wedding. <laughs> but it was a wonderful occasion and a wonderful time. But it it stayed on the back of our minds. And stress can be chronic, which is it's it may not be a big deal. But it's constant. You know, if I could give you a, a 12-ounce water bottle and ask you to hold it out like this, about the first time you stuck it out there, I'd say, how heavy is that? You'd say, not very heavy. I'll ask you in 10 minutes. Well, in 10 minutes, that water bottle owns your world. The only thing you can think about is your rotator cuff because you've got this chronic downward pressure going on. Well, sometimes just the day-to-day activities, having small children... Uh, being self-employed, having a job, working with an unreasonable boss, having some kind of a chronic illness, having some kind of uh, thing that, that stays on you. That's chronic stress. Well, chronic stress will at some point lead you to losing a lot of your energy and wear you out. And it has a strong effect on your mood and your ability to, to, to function. Uh, with stress, then we talk about loss. Loss is not just grief as in somebody died. I define loss according to uh, Bill Warden's idea that when life doesn't turn out like I expect it to, I suffer loss. So this is expectation and this is reality. And the difference between expectation and reality is a loss and humans grieve all losses. So if you've got any kind of perceived loss, whether it's the death of a loved one or you didn't reach your expectations. You know, I thought I was going to be six foot four and have black curly hair. Well, there's expectation. Well, here's reality. I've got to deal with that. I've got to make some kind of adjustments to it. It may be that you thought you're going to go to this college or going to get this promotion or going to live in this house. Anytime you have an expectation that doesn't meet reality, you deal with loss. The best way to function with that loss is understand that the grieving process, number one, is normal, number two, is healthy, number three, is natural, and that grieving is not a linear process. And by linear, it's not the idea that you start at point A, go to point B, go to point C, and go to point D. Grieving is like balancing four different tasks at the same time. It's basically like putting four legs under a chair. When you have all four legs under that chair, that chair is stable and you can sit in it for a long, long time. I can sit in a chair with one leg if that leg's in the right place, but it takes a lot of concentration. I can sit in a chair with three legs, but if I get on the wrong side, I can dump out of that thing. So what happens in the grieving process, people say, well, I'm stuck in grieving, and that extended or complicated grieving causes people to be depressed. There's a window of time when you have a loss that sadness is inherent. And it's going to do what it's going to do. I talk about that in some grief places, that it's like driving in the fog. For a while after somebody dies or after you've suffered a major loss or when expectation and reality doesn't match, you can really only see just a little bit in, in front of you. And you just move one step at a time. At some point, you're going to go around the corner, atop a hill, and the fog lifts. 
And I tell folks all the time who've lost spouses or who've gone through divorces or other things that you're in the fog phase and it's, at some point down the line that fog's going to lift. There's no timeline. There, there's, no, there's no, well, you should do this in six weeks. You should do this in six months. That's a very individual thing. The easiest way to measure your progress in grieving is to think about those four tasks. Task number one is accept the reality. A lot of times when we suffer a loss or we get a disappointment, we fail to recognize that, hey, this is what's happened. You'll find people in, in a death or a loss or a tragedy, you'll see them walking around shell-shocked, and, and what will come out of their mouth is, I still can't believe it happened. Well, when you're in that place where you, you, you kind of feel like you're in a bad dream, you haven't accepted the reality. Accepting the reality sometimes takes some time. Sometimes accepting the reality is just about overcoming habits. Because if you've been used to, to going to this job or being with this person, the first day you're without that, when you wake up, your routine will feel the same, and it's hard for you to grasp this is real. So once you've accepted the reality, the other task you've got to do is express and experience all the emotions. And, and emotions are just what they are. They're emotions. They came from the Father. They're all valid. There's not an emotion you should have. There's not an emotion you shouldn't have. You have emotions. The interesting thing about our emotions is understanding that our emotions are not instructions. Our emotions are information. Now, do you understand the difference between information and instruction? Okay, in North Alabama this means yes. This means no. This means you're not voting. Do you understand the difference in instruction and information? Right, my wife and I are on a road trip. Driving down, we stop at this little service station. I go inside. 45 minutes later, I come back out. She said, what took you so long? I said, they had a sign that said clean restroom. So I did. Does that sign tell me to clean the restroom? Everybody said, no, no. That tells you the restrooms are clean. Well, sometimes we get emotional signals and we take them as instructions. Act angry. Act disjunctive, act frustrated. No, no, no. When I have an emotion, it doesn't tell me to do anything. It just tells me something. Now, based on that information, I can lead myself into some instructions, but for the most part, when we get in trouble with guilt or loss hurting us in, in the depression area, we're taking our emotions and using them as instructions. I don't feel like going to church. I don't feel like going to work. I don't feel like... Well, if you waited till you felt like doing things, a lot of things wouldn't be done. Right? When I quit getting out of breath, I'll start jogging. <laughs> no, you have to start jogging before you quit getting out of breath. When I put two inches on my arm and lose two inches in my waist, I'll go back to the gym. No, that's not the way it works. So sometimes, if you wake up in the morning and say, I don't feel like doing this, well, you're going to feel better at home or feel better at work. I'm going to feel the same. I'll go to work. You're going to feel better at home or feel better shopping. I'm going to feel the same. We're going to go shopping. If it's not going to change your mode or your mood, then do the thing that you should do. I even do that with my chronic pain patients. Are you going to hurt more or less sit, sitting at home or sitting on a deer stand? Well, I'll hurt the same. Well, go hunting. And then when you act better than you feel, not being duplicitous, not being hypocritical, but you just act differently than you feel, 
that a lot of times our feelings change because of our actions. But if we let our moods control us, then we're victims of our moods. So, so stress and then loss. The, the third thing with loss is once you ex, ex, accept the reality and experience the emotions, number three, you have to adjust or define the new norm. And the new norm is dealing with what is present right now. It's very easy for us to get stuck in the past, especially with trauma. And it's very easy to look at a future that we were going to predict and grieve a future we never lost. But accepting the reality is, what do I have right here, right now, and what can I do with it? It's so easy to try to make decisions based on, if I only had this, I could do that. that that's probably a bad strategy. Because then you're locked into a thing where you're responsible for things you can't control. Um, in his book on coaching, Josh Medcalf talks about control the controllables. What can you do with what you've got? I built an indoor climbing wall several years ago for the city of Huntsville and ran some after-school programs doing some experience-based teaching with children. In one of those seminars that we were doing, uh, they sent me a little boy that only had one arm. A little kid named Chris, little African American guy. And what we do in a rock climbing class is rock climbing is about making good decisions, trusting an anchor point. It's about being able to communicate. There's a lot of really good, uh, valuable lessons there. But one of the things we do in the class is we teach the children to belay. Now, belaying is a sailing term. It means to hold a rope secure. So if I tied a rope to Mark and we threw it over a rafter and ran it through a friction device on my belt, as he climbs up, I pull the slack down into the brake and pull the slack out of the brake. And so as he goes up, the rope gets shorter so that if he falls, he doesn't take a dynamic whipper. He just kind of hangs in place. That's called top rope climbing all amateur climbers top rope. And that's what we do in the climbing gym. And it's a big deal to learn to belay. Make the kids learn to belay. Then they have to belay one another. And then on the fourth class, they have to belay one of their parents, which is really cool when a seventh grader is in charge of his dad or his mom's safety on a 25-foot wall. And, you know, you'll be in the class and, you know, get dad back on the ground safety and, and then you'll go, hey, you know, your, your dad was climbing the wall and you were screaming at him. What was going on? Well, he, he had a foothold right there and he wouldn't listen to me and I was afraid... Well, welcome to parenthood. Your dad's been in charge of your safety since you took your first breath. So if he gets a little crazy when you get your learner's permit or you play softball, calm down. You experienced parenthood for 15 seconds and lost your mind. Uh, They've been doing this a long time. It's a great teaching tool. So we're teaching the kids to belay. Ropes are hanging everywhere. Got kids all around me. I'm doing some exercises with some guys. And there's this tug on my harness. And this little kid, Chris, with the one arm says, Mr. Lonnie, Mr. Lonnie, I need to learn to belay. And not being very smart, I said, well, Chris, normally people use two hands to belay. And Chris said, well, normally I just have one. <laughs> so here's this little kid in the seventh grade staring me dead in the eye. And he says this to me. Don't tell me what people with two hands can do. Tell me what I can do with the one hand I've got. Do you know how significant that statement is from a child? Don't tell me what people with two hands can do. What can I do with the one hand I've got? Don't tell me what people who have their health do. Tell me what I can do with the health I've got. Don't tell me what people younger than me can do. What, what can I do with, with my age? All of a sudden, if we begin to focus on what we have rather than what we don't have, loss doesn't seem to be as powerful. And adjusting to the new norm, what is, 
rather than what could be or what was, we're, we're much more happier. Now, your brain has the ability to do things with loss and even with trauma that when it deals with your past is really, really confusing sometimes. Um, if I make this statement, in my truck is a candy bar. Your brain has the ability to extrapolate information. Some of you invented a truck for me. Some of you pictured a little red pickup. Some of you pictured a big truck with big wheels. Some of you actually know what the tactical Toyota looks like, so you looked at it. And then your mind created a candy bar. Some of you guys saw a Butterfinger. Some of you guys saw a Snicker bar. Some of you guys saw a Reese, right? I made the simple statement in my truck there's a candy bar, and you created this scenario that if we could go out there and get in Jones's truck, we'd have us a candy bar. All based on one piece of information. Well, when you say in my past, a long time ago, your brain extrapolates that. Now, you've got a, a pretty even chance to go out and find my truck and find snacks. You passed that out there, I guarantee you. Now, you go out there and get a candy bar out of my truck, maybe. But you go find your past out there, and there's nothing you can do about your past if it is out there. And since you can't find your past and it's not out there and you can't change it, why do we live in our past as if it still exists? For all practical purposes, it doesn't exist. There's nothing you can do about it. Quit living in the past. So accept the reality, adjust, uh, experience the emotions, define and adjust to the new norm, and then you find something to reinvest your energy in. If this is what I have, if this is what I can do... That's what I'm going to do with it. And then you find a new thing. So that's stress and loss. And then a lot of times we deal with guilt. And guilt is either perceived or real. But in either way, guilt sometimes causes us to try to be responsible for things that we can't control. And that's a major, major cognitive distortion that leads us into being depressed. Because if you don't behave the way I think you should behave, then it's somehow my fault that you didn't do that. The church actually almost teaches that. It's called a therapeutic moralistic deism. That if I do what I'm supposed to do, you'll do what you're supposed to do. And if you're not doing what you're supposed to do, somehow I failed. And people get really, really tied up in, in a lot of inappropriate guilt for things that they have no responsibility for. And we'll talk about that some later as the, as the, the program progresses. So when you begin to talk about stress, loss, and guilt, all three of those things usually involve normal processes but those processes kind of get off the radar when we're guilty of cognitive distortions now let me show you just a real quick little thing here about working with cognitive distortions everything that happens in your life we'll call an event and no matter what it is it doesn't matter you went somewhere you didn't go somewhere you got up your tires were flat got up your tires were not it's raining it's not raining the sun's shining for every event you have there's a byproduct that is emotions. And it doesn't matter. Everything that happens in your life has a byproduct of emotions. Now, our emotions are all valid. They all came from God. They were installed at the factory. The Creator gave you the ability to emote. My wife says, that's not a word. Yes, it is. Emote is a verb. And so you have the ability to emote. When your emotions are doing what your emotions are supposed to do, your emotions will lead to balance and harmony. That's why they're healthy. That's why they're just simply information rather than instruction. Godly sorrow produces repentance that leads to salvation not to be regretted. If I feel guilty and it does what it's supposed to do, it makes me improve. 
if I feel guilty and it leads me to, to some kind of self-destruction, it doesn't do what it's supposed to do. Look at the night that Jesus was arrested. The night that Jesus was arrested and taken to be crucified, one out of the twelve apostles admitted knowing him. Which one was it? Judas. And yet of all the twelve that, that ran away, and Judas is the one that says, yeah, I know him, I know where he hangs out, I know him so well I'll kiss him. You better know me real well if you kiss me. By the way. That's a different culture. But he, you know, of all of those guys, Judas ends up killing himself and Peter ends up preaching the first gospel sermon. Well, have the discussion about guilt between Peter and Judas. Peter walks up to Judas and says, I can't believe you told those guys you knew Jesus. Judas replies, I can't believe you told those guys you didn't. And yet one person takes the guilt and turns his life around. The other person takes the guilt and self-destructs. So if you're using your emotions properly, they're going to lead somehow to balance and harmony. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath. If you're angry, be careful with it because it can lead to bad stuff. But if it's properly done and you're not sinning and the sun doesn't go down on your wrath, the devil won't get a, a foothold and you won't be in trouble. But if you don't properly produce your anger or properly express it, it leads to repression, it leads to frustration, it leads to aggression, and it leads to depression. Sometimes, though, when we have our emotions... They either produce destruction or dysfunction. That's when I get concerned as a therapist. Somebody has an event that takes place, and that event leads to emotions that are producing distress, destruction, or dysfunction. Now, when I see emotions that are producing things that are not healthy, that's, what, that's when I start thinking about cognitive behavioral therapy. Because something has happened and it's causing these things to manifest themselves on an emotional level. Well, where does that come from? It comes from the fact that we run our emotions through a filter. So when something happens and I end up with my emotions, the emotions come out either on this side or that side because I ran them through a little perception filter. Perception is the interpretation of things. Perception basically is the idea that says what I perceive has more effect on what I see than what I see has on what I perceive. I'll say it one more time for the Tennessee fans. Perception affects what you see more strongly than what you see affects what you perceive. People who don't believe in Bigfoot have never seen him. People who do believe in Bigfoot see him all the time. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I don't believe in Bigfoot. There's a guy in a girl suit. There's a bear. There's a guy in a ghillie suit. There's just a big hairy dude walking. When you believe in Bigfoot and you see stuff in the woods you can't explain, it becomes a heffalump or a woozle, and there it is. And so your perceptions cause those things to take place. The reason that that's very important is my perceptions cause me to assign meanings to things. Look in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 37. Prior to chapter 37 in Genesis, you've got some brothers. Joseph is one of the brothers. Now Joseph's father says, hey, you're the son of one of my favorite wives and I'm going to, to basically treat you better. And he gives Joseph a very special present. What does he give him? A beautiful coat. Either a richly ornamented robe 
a coat of many colors, or in some versions, a coat with sleeves. Which means you're the heir. You're going to get the stuff. You're the man. You're the guy. How does Joseph handle this this newfound power? Did you do a good job of that? Eh, sort of. He kind of lets his brothers know he's the favorite. He tells his brothers, Hey, uh, I had a dream, and y'all had stuff, and I had stuff, and your stuff bad down to my stuff. I'm going to get all this stuff. <laughs> He catches his brothers out in the field. They're not doing their job. He tells dad on them. So Joseph, not only is this kid with the special robe and doesn't have to do all the chores, he's now become dad's spy. And so one day his brothers are out near Shechem and, and, and the old man says, hey, go check on your brothers. And Joseph goes out there and he gets lost. And he has to have directions to find his brothers. And he's coming up. He finally gets to where they're at. He's coming up on them. What do his brothers say? Look, here comes that dreamer. He told us about those dreams where our stuff bowed down to his stuff. And so his brothers invent the game Survivor and vote him off the island. Now their plan is to do away with him. They throw him in a pit. One of the brothers counsels and says, hey look, you, you really shouldn't do this. And so what they end up doing is they sell their brother into slavery. I don't know if you've ever thought about those ramifications. It probably sounded like a good idea at the time. But you've sold your brother and now you've got to go home for supper. That's awkward. Sit down at the table, where's your brother? We sold him. (laughs) You don't have that conversation with your dad. You don't sell your siblings, okay? So what do they tell their dad? Do you remember what they tell Jacob? I I see people saying a lie ate him. He was murdered. He was killed. Check this out. They don't tell him anything. Genesis chapter 37, verse 31. So they took Joseph's tunic. They killed the kid of the goats. They dipped the tunic in the blood and they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, We found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Event. I see a bloody coat. The meaning he assigned to that event was, and Jacob said, or Jacob recognized it, said, It is Joseph's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth on his waist, and mourned his son for many days. In fact, he's going to make a statement later on, I will go to my grave mourning. Now, if you go to your grave mourning, what does that mean? If I start here and go till I die morning, that means I ain't never going to be happy again. He's seen an event. The event is a bloody coat. And because of that bloody coat, his perception is, this means my son is dead. Is the meaning he assigned to that a valid meaning? Number one, is his son dead? Number two, will he ever see him again? Hey, while he's worried about his son being dead, his son's fat and sassy. He's running Egypt. He's pretty healthy. He sees this coat and interprets it as, this means my son is dead. He's been torn by a wall. How do you tear a kid to pieces and leave his coat intact? Little ninja lines. He's got this bloody coat and he jumps to the conclusion because I see this bloody coat. This means my son is dead. It means he's torn to pieces. It means I'll, I'll never be happy again. 
this situation makes him vulnerable the rest of his life. Joseph's brothers end up in Egypt in front of Joseph and Joseph says, I need to meet your younger brother. And they say, that's not going to happen, sir. He says, if I don't see him again, you'll never see my face again. They say, look, you don't understand. We had a brother that got killed and this is the last brother from this wife and if anything happens to him, that old man will come apart. He is so vulnerable about the perceived loss of Joseph that they can't get Benjamin away from him. And by the way, as long as we're chasing the rabbit of, of perceived meaning, you read the transformation of Joseph. When Joseph's brothers get to Egypt, Joseph's not a nice guy. He torments them. He scares them. Now, put yourself in Joseph's perspective. I disappeared, and nobody's ever come looking for me. He's lived in Egypt since he was about 17 years old and hadn't heard boo. And all of a sudden his brothers show up and he's like, why didn't dad come looking for me? I think his, in, in his mind, and I've never really understood as a kid why he plays this game with, with his cup and with Benjamin. First question is, do you have another brother? I think he's asking about himself. He wants to know, will these rascals admit, yeah, there's one of us that's missing. But when he asks, do you have another brother, he, he finds out, he remembers Benjamin. I need to see him. Well, what's the plan when Benjamin gets to Egypt? I'm going to plant a cup in Benjamin's sack. They're going to get halfway home. I'm going to send my servant. I'm going to say, you guys stole my cup. No, sir, we didn't. Yes, you did. Here's what my master says. The person I find the cup with becomes my slave forever. So they start searching the cups. Who do they find the cup with? Benjamin. His baby brother, he rescues from these rascals. He gets back to Egypt. Joseph plans to say, hey, look, I'm, not, I'm your brother. Those guys left me in the desert to die and sold me to the slavers. Dad didn't even come looking for me. I'm rescuing you from that dysfunctional family. I think that's his plan. Because his perception is these guys are rascals. These guys are selfish. These guys are cowards. Yet at the end of this story, when, when he is going to keep Benjamin, look what happens in, in Genesis chapter 42. He gave the command to fill the sacks with grain and restore all the men's money. So they've got the money trick that takes place. Then you go to chapter 44. He's captured Benjamin and brought Benjamin back to Egypt. Verse 18. Judah came near to Joseph and said, Oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in your Lord's hearing. Do not be angry. Let your anger burn against me, for you are even like Pharaoh. My Lord, ask his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, well, We have a father an old man, and a child of his old age. He's young. His brother's dead, and he is left alone of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And you said, bring him down to me that I may set eyes on him. And we said, the lad cannot leave his father. If he should leave his father, his father would die. But you said to your servants, unless this youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. So it was when we went down with your servant, my father, that we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back and buy us a little food. We said, we can't go back down if our youngest brother is not with us. Then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. 
And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn to pieces. First time Joseph knows what dad thinks happened to him. That's why dad didn't come looking for him. Surely he's torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. But if you take this one also from me, and calamity befalls him, you shall bring down my gray hair to sorrow with the grave. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, it will happen that when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. So your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, with sorrow to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame forever. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the lad as a slave to the Lord, and let him go back to his brothers. Joseph expects this guy to go, Hey, we didn't steal the cup. This kid got the cup. We can't explain it. We'll see you. That's why his brothers treated him. They dropped him in a pit slave traders now this brother is standing in front of him and begging for his little brother's life he's begging for his father's life and he says you know what I'll be your slave and when Joseph hears those words chapter 45 verse 1 he becomes so emotional he makes everybody leave the room why his expectation was these guys hate me these guys are sorry these guys are cowards these guys will abandon this little guy and I'll adopt him and he'll live in Egypt in prosperity with me forever. When he finds out, hey, Dad didn't abandon me. He thought I was dead. They lied to him. These guys aren't the cowards I think they are. They actually love their father and they even love little Benjamin. His whole perception changes. But when we have meanings that we assign to something and those are valid meanings, those valid meanings lead us to valid emotions. But if the meanings we assign to things are invalid, those invalid meanings lead us to invalid emotions. Now, what are those invalid meanings we assign to things? I'm responsible for things I can't control. I had a lady call me one time, and I don't mean for this to be politically incorrect, or, or any, but she called me in a panic. I answered the phone. She said, Dr. Jones, number one, I'm not a doctor. See, Dr. Jones, I said something to my 12-year-old son made him gay. I said, well, call him back, say something to make him heterosexual. She laughed at me on the phone. I said, you don't have the power to do that. If I could make you gay, I could make you straight. If I could make you drink, I could keep you sober. If I could make you mad, I could make you happy. See, when we try to become responsible for things we can't control, we assign meanings to things that aren't valid. And those invalid meanings, if I could make you be a bad husband, I could make you be a good husband. If I could make you cheat, I could make you faithful. If I could make you leave the church, I could make you sit here every Sunday. If you're doing anything other than what I would choose, I'm not driving this bus. So we try to be responsible for things we can't control. Number two, we, we tend to end up with all or nothing thinking. Cognitive distortions are that if it's, if it's not just a perfect scenario, then I've failed. In the real world, that wall represents ideal. This wall represents unacceptable. If I'm in the middle of the room, I'm a happy little guy. But sometimes we, when we're especially vulnerable for depression, we call it all or nothing thinking. We separate ideal and unacceptable about that narrow. Especially if you're a teenager, by the way. If I didn't do it all, I didn't do any. If they won't let me go there, they've never let me go anywhere. If everybody's not happy, nobody's happy. 
If that boy broke up with me, I'll never have a boyfriend again. And so they, they swap between ideal and unacceptable. Well, so we do the same thing when we're vulnerable to depression because instead of looking at what we did accomplish, we only focus on what we didn't accomplish. Instead of looking at what we have, we focus on what we don't have. We'll talk about that a little later on today. So the other cognitive distortion is the idea of entitlement. That if I act like I'm supposed to act, you'll act like you're supposed to act. Read Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus talks about uh, being a good person. Look at Matthew 5.43. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That's pretty simple math. I can do that, by the way. But I say to you, love your enemies... Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And they'll invite you to the best barbecues. You'll be the president of the Homeowners Association. You'll be president of the PTA. Is that what your Bible says? It says you treat people the way you treat people because you're a son of God. Period. That verse, the golden rule, turn the other cheek, go the second mile, are not designed to change other people's behavior. They're simply designed to change my behavior. And if we get into the idea that my behavior is locked into your behavior, then when you misbehave, it's always my fault. And that leads to a great deal of depression. We've taught in the church that if you dot your I's and cross your T's, you'll have beautiful kids and faithful spouses. And I only control part of that. I only control my behavior. And yet somehow we think you didn't do what you were supposed to do. Somehow that makes me a bad husband, a bad wife, a bad deacon, or a bad minister. How many times you blamed yourself because somebody didn't come down the aisle? Hey, if I'd have just been a better preacher. No, no, you've done your job. You've taught the truth. What they do with their seat, that's their business. But we get so wrapped up in the fact that this is this, they call it the entitlement, and it's not like they're talking about in politics. The entitlement mentality is that if I do my job right, you'll do yours right. If you're not doing yours right, somehow it's my fault. That's just not true. But it leads to those things that, hey, this didn't happen, and because that didn't happen, it means... And when you can't have a, a meaning that is invalid, your emotions are invalid. How do I know the difference? When your emotional responses are producing distress and dysfunction rather than balance and harmony. And as we begin to talk a little later today, we'll, we'll do two case studies on, on emotion-based thinking and how people's distorted thinking got them into trouble and use these principles. These are basically known as the, the seven cognitive distortions or seven psychological vulnerabilities. Now, Please understand that if you have one of these vulnerabilities, it doesn't mean there's something terribly wrong with you. Okay? A vulnerability just simply means that we're wired a certain way, and because we're wired a certain way, that can be taken advantage of when we're vulnerable. Uh, the very same thing that makes a rope useful, you take one of the climbing ropes out of my truck, and you put a knot in it, is that rope weaker or stronger? It's weaker by 50%. But you can't use a rope you don't put a knot in. So the very same thing that makes that rope vulnerable makes it functional. We do the things that we do because of the way we're wired and those make us vulnerable to certain kinds of distorted thinking and leads us into depression. And so just because you have these propensities that doesn't mean something's broken with you. I care a lot about people. I care a lot about people and, and as a youth minister, I like to lost my mind. Because I couldn't go home and say, you know, that's really not my kid. It really belongs to them. 
But if I didn't care about people, I couldn't be a minister and I couldn't be a counselor. But the simple fact that I care about people means I have to be careful not to cross that line and make their problems my problems. And so the distorted thinking is really what we're going to talk about mostly today. Emotion-based thinking, illogical-based thinking, or interpretation-type errors. So, so the best intervention, when you have an event, you have a triggering event, I want to ask, what happened? Second thing I'm going to ask is, what does this mean? And then the third thing I'm going to ask is, does this mean what I think it means? If you picture two circles, this is, what I, this is my feelings... And these are the facts. When the feelings and the facts overlap, I'm making good choices. Let me do one quick example and then I'll wrap up. I think I heard one bell, but that was probably two because I see the regrets coming in. Um, intellectually, what my wife intellectually knows about spiders. She teaches science. She can probably tell you the kingdom order, phylum, genus, and species of spiders. She can tell you there's only two venomous species in Alabama, the brown recluse and the black widow. She can tell you that there's no such thing as a poisonous spider. They're venomous. Poison is ingested. Venom is injected. There's a a differentiation there. She knows this stuff. That's what she knows about spiders. When she sees one, how does she respond? With that intellect or that emotion? She jumps up on the table and yells, it's a tarantula, and there's no tarantulas in Alabama, I promise you, and she wants me to kill it. Well, you know, why should the homicidal spider not? Well, it's, it's her, what she feels and what she knows get separated. And so many times that's what leads us into depression. Without all the technical talk about cognitive distortions, we take our feelings and we separate them from facts, and we operate only on feelings without facts. You're in trouble. What do I feel? What do I know? How much do they overlap? What does this mean? What does it mean to me? And simply, does it mean what I think it means? We're going to do a case study at worship uh, about a a depressive episode in the life of Elijah. And then after that, uh, we'll have some discussion after our lunch. Thank you for studying with me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today and for the opportunity to talk about a very special topic Father, help the things that we say not only to be biblical, but to be practical. Father, bless our worship today. Thank you for the safe travel here. Bless our day together. In Jesus' name, amen.